Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. Reading, reading, reading. Working through the pile and reading a few library books from beloved or favorite authors is where I've been lately. I'd originally been hoping to talk about one of those authors. Mary Roach has her new book, Fuzz, out about animals who break the law, but it was decided that that should be a family read aloud, and it will probably take a little bit longer to get through, but hopefully by the next episode we can talk about that. I've also joined a NetGalley and have been reading a few graphic novels through that service. If you're curious, you can read the reviews for those on Goodreads. Uh, but if one of those stands out in the two-week period, they might make a future episode. One of the more recent one was Sarah's Scribbles, Volume 4, but it did not make the shortlist for this week. Featured book number one is Gold's Book of Fish, a novel in 12 fish. It is by Richard Flanagan, a white Australian author, environmental activist, and film director. His work has received many prizes and honors, including the Man Booker Prize for Fiction in 2014 for his book, The Narrow Road to the Deep North. He is also an ambassador for the Indigenous Literacy Foundation, and he was named an honorary citizen of Oxford, Mississippi, the hometown of William Faulkner. This book came my way through a recommendation somewhere by Nancy Pearl, uh, most likely through one of her booklust volumes or possibly from the writer's library. Gold's Book of Fish uh, is Once Upon a Time, that was called 1828, before all the living things on the land and the fishes in the sea were destroyed, there was a man named William Bulow Gold, a convict in Van Diemen's land who fell in love with a black woman and discovered too late that to love is not safe. Silly Billy Gold, invader of Australia, liar, murderer, forger, fantasist, condemned to live in the most brutal penal colony in the British Empire, and there ordered to paint a book of fish. Once upon a time, miraculous things happened. So first, the factual with this book. Each of the 12 chapters is named after a fish and includes the actual painted fish as done by the real convict artist, William Bulow Gold. However, it's a complex work that makes lots of allusions or references in the text, with Gold being a very playful narrator, sharing his life story, but also trying to present himself in the best of light, explaining how he accidentally came to be imprisoned and has so far survived that experience. The book is initially introduced by an antique, and that's in quotation marks there, dealer named Hobart Bart, who explains where he found this book, and that he became obsessed with it, met with academics, tried to trace its history. And that is the first 40 pages of this book, because uh, the original 40 have been lost. And actually, the book Obart found has been lost. And instead, the version we are reading is the one that Hobart remembers and has reconstructed based on his notes and his memory. So a central theme of this is certainly truth, but also power and love are recurrent central themes as well. Gold seeks love and companionship while trying to survive, and this account is his truth, or at least his truth, as told by Hobart, an antiques forger. But as we explore the plot here, and as pointed out in that introduction, it seems to run counter to the actual historical record. 
a complex work that would likely benefit from a reread or two, but at first pass was both amusing and distressing. Our other reading soon at featured book from our last full episode, episode 45, My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones, who is a Blackfeet Native American author and professor. He has a bachelor's from Texas Tech University in English and Philosophy, a master's in English from the University of North Texas, and a PhD from Florida State University. His work has received many awards and honors, including the Bram Stoker Award for Long Fiction in 2017 and the Ray Bradbury Prize for Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Speculative Fiction in 2020. He is a very prolific author. Uh, I first heard of him through the publication of his book in 2020, The Only Good Indians, which was featured way back in episode 10. So My Heart is a Chainsaw is focused on Jade Daniels, an angry half-Indian outcast with an abusive father, an absent mother, and an entire town that wants nothing to do with her. She lives in her own world, a world in which protection comes from an unusual source, horror movies, especially the ones where a masked killer seeks revenge on the world that wronged them. And Jade narrates the quirky history of Proofrock as if it were one of those movies. But when blood actually starts to spill into the waters of Indian Lake, she pulls us into her dizzying encyclopedic mind of blood and masked murderers, and predicts exactly how the plot will unfold. So this very much starts in the traditional horror movie territory, where the prologue or initial section is two young people traveling through, stopping at Indian Lake where, at night, deciding to explore the lake, and then they, something happens that makes them both scream, and we hear no more of them. But for much of the book, the main focus is Jade, and she is our narrator for most of the book, narrating through her headspace and thought patterns. So she certainly goes off on tangents about horror movies and how people should react in them. And if you don't already know a lot about horror movies or sl the slasher genre, you will leave this book with a greater knowledge. Fairly early on, we know Jade has become a loner or outsider within her town. We even see that highlighted in the description, not being particularly close with anyone. She is counting down the days for when she can leave town and look for a new home. So she is very much struggling to find her place, and the plot drives to the revelation of what broke up Jade's family, which is fully revealed at the truly tumultuous climax that takes place on July 4th. It does have some commonalities with Grady Hendrick's latest, The Final Girl Support Group, as that too is very much tied up in the history of horror films, that one particularly, the slashers with The Final Girl. But the plot here is less action-packed and unfurls more slowly, toying much more with perspective and rumor. And the ending is definitely startling, so it does build up to quite an action-packed ending. But does it fit? I'd be happy to discuss that further outside this recording, because I found it a bit of a surprise with everything else that had been built up, but don't want to go too in-depth for those who might be encouraged to check this book out. Our third book, Home Before Dark, continues us in kind of a Halloween-influenced reading selections. So Home Before Dark is by Riley Sager, a white American author, journalist, editor, and graphic designer whose real name is Todd Ritlip. He also writes under the name Alan Finn, and all of the names he writes under are typically creating works of the thriller genre. As Sager, he has released five books, this one in 2020. 
So my library had a copy, and I've been curious about this author since first hearing of them for their 2017 book, Final Girls. Home Before Dark is a split narrative that alternates between Ewan Holt's famous book, House of Horrors, about he and his family's purchase of and experience of living in Bainbury Hall, and the present day where Maggie Holt tries to determine what really happened following her father's death and her surprise inheritance of the house. Why did they leave the house when she was a young girl? That's what she sets out to find. So the author had stated that this was inspired by the Amityville horror, and that was a clear hoax, and Riley was seeking to find perhaps why they felt the need to write that book and create. Like, was it a snowballing situation as presented in this book, or was there some clear purpose in their writing other than trying to explain away why they moved. From Home Before Dark, much of the runtime, the question of the haunting is not clarified, which takes things into a psychological space. Is it grief? Is it guilt? Is it a ghost? Or is it all made up? These are questions you might find yourself asking at different points, as the characters in the book do as well. One of the strengths of this work is that snowballing effect. So we have the initial event and the longer scope of that event and its effect on this town where Bainbury Hall is located. It becomes infamous for this haunting. So a town haunted by the success of a ghost story. Again, seasonally appropriate, but attentive readers may very well figure things out well ahead of the end, despite a few last-minute twists. But certainly, key features, like in a Chekhov play, as introduced, are used later. Our fourth book, an only non-Halloween one this week, apparently, depending on how you look at Gold's book, is 97 Orchard, an edible history of five immigrant families in one New York tenement. It is by Jane Ziegelman, a white American food historian and the director of the culinary program at New York City's Tenement Museum, located at 97 Orchard Street. She also founded and directs Kids Book Cook, Kids Cook, a multi-ethnic cooking program for children. She has published two books and co-written a third with her husband and culinary historian, Andrew Coe. So Hungering for America first introduced me to 97 Orchard Street, and this was actually the second book I read about this month. The other was a history of the building's construction and renovations, which was also fascinating in its own way. So 97 Orchard is a detailed investigation into the lives, but more so culinary habits, of five families that lived at 97 Orchard Street, New York, from the 1860s when it was constructed to the 1930s. So this book is overall short, but rich in food detail. If you've read Hungering for America, a lot of the information here is shorter, more condensed version of that book, but it does expand beyond it, again, focusing more so on the people who lived in 97 Orchard. It offers some information about those families, but spends much of its length talking about the economics of that. So wages that were earned and what buying power that would give them and what foods they typically ate in the tenement as compared to in the old country or possibly what the more mainstream America was eating. So it does make lots of comparisons to those different immigrant groups and the change in, of taste. So the fact that initially Italian food was seen as off-putting by Americans, or how much seafood was eaten just because it was very close and easy to get to. So it includes numerous recipes that have been updated for the contemporary kitchen. So as you're reading through, if you find something tempting, you could always recreate it.
So our final book follows the trend from episode 45, featuring a book I read long before the podcast, but still feel like I should feature. So this is Paperbacks from Hell, The Twisted History of the 70s and 80s Horror Fiction. Grady Hendrix is a white American author, journalist, and screenwriter. Alongside his novels, his writing has appeared in numerous media outlets, including Playboy magazine, The New York Post, and The New York Sun. He also wrote his own podcast called Super Scary Haunted Homeschool. And it features an afterword by Will Erickson, who is a white American horror crime and science fiction author who also runs the blog Too Much Horror Fiction, devoted to collecting and reviewing the best and worst in paperback horror from the 60s through the 90s. So Grady Hendrix has been featured a few times on this podcast, most recently in episode 43, but this is the very first book of his I read. Paperbacks from Hell is Hendrix offering a social history of the paperback horror book genre detailing plots, artwork, authors, artists, and publishers with a gleeful penchant for tangents and sidebars. So each chapter of this book begins by focusing on an iconic work before delving into the spin-offs, rip-offs, or some or similar inspirations. The first example of this is The Exorcist, but he also talks about Jaws and, again, some very other notable works. So it also contextualized the plots or popularity of the themes by tying them into socio-political discourse and issues. So he does take a deeper look at the monster in the home or uh, Native American curses that both have their own sections of discussion. And these are both a love letter and a criticism of some of its more outlandish descendants. So the inspiration for Hendricks to write this book was coming across 1966, The Little People, about a British couple that becomes the owner of an Irish castle that they turn into a bed and breakfast. And the cover of this prominently features Nazi armbanded gnomes or elves type figures. And this is actually a book I find myself recommending fairly often to anyone who expresses an interest in horror books, as it is both a delightful romp through the genre, as well as a lot of tangents and criticisms against it. If nothing else, many Goodreads reviewers and people who have read it say this could add plenty to your to-read list. That's all the books for this episode. Hopefully for our next full episode, uh, we'll be talking about these books. So the first is The First World War by Hugh Strachan. Uh, and this is, the First World War was a truly global conflict from the start, with many of the most decisive battles fought in or directly affecting the Balkans, Africa, and the Ottoman Empire. The First World War, the book, recreates this world-altering conflict both on and off the battlefield. The clash of ideologies between the colonial powers at the center of the war, the social and economic unrest that swept Europe both before and after, the military strategies employed with stunning success and tragic failure in the various theaters of war the terms of peace, and why it didn't last. Drawing on material cold for many countries, Strachan offers a fresh, clear-sighted perspective on how the war not only redrew the map of the world, but also set in motion the most dangerous conflicts of today. And then our other reading soon book is Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore from 1994 to 2007 by Dan Ozzy. And this is a raucous history of punk, emo, and hardcore's growing pains during the commercial boom of the early 90s and mid-aughts, following 11 bands as they sell out and find mainstream fame or break beneath the weight of it all. 
Bands included are Green Day, Jawbreaker, Jimmy Eat World, Blink-182, At the Drive-In, The Donnas, Thursday, The Distillers, My Chemical Romance, Rise Against, and Against Me. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story. Feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.